Friday the 9th of August. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 1996 would be a day that would go down in Belgium history for being the catalyst of a decades-long investigation into serial homicide, child trafficking, and government-level cover-ups. When I set out to begin researching this case, I initially expected just a case about a serial killer. However, as I delved deeper and deeper into this case, I soon realized that there were a lot more to it than what meets the eye. On that fateful Friday in August of 1996, 14-year-old Georgia, which is a fake name that I'm using to protect her identity, was walking home from her local swimming pool in the Belgium city of Betri. However, Georgia never made it home. Georgia's parents were quick to inform the local authorities that their 14-year-old girl was missing, and a massive investigation was launched in an attempt to locate the missing girl. Fortunately, two witnesses actually came forward with information about a suspicious white van that had been seen hanging around the swimming pool which Georgia frequented. These two witnesses decided that as a precaution, they should note down the license plate of this suspicious white van. And this license plate would become a vital piece of evidence for investigators in the search for the missing 14-year-old girl. The witnesses were only able to give partial plates of the suspicious white van, and those readings were FFR 692 or FFR 697. But despite only partial plates being given to the authorities, the investigating officers were able to use this information along with the description of the vehicle to trace the suspicious van back to its owner. And its owner was a man called Marc Dutroux. On the 13th of August 1996, Belgian police paid a visit to Marc Dutroux at his home. And when they got there, they were greeted by Marc Dutroux and his wife, Michelle Martin, who had actually been a former teacher, along with a third person, another man. And this third man was called Michael Lelivre. The three of them were immediately brought to a local police station to undergo intensive interrogation and questioning on potential 
kidnapping charges. Charges which all three of them initially denied. The police actually searched Mark Dutroux's house, however, and unfortunately the results of the search actually came back inconclusive, which means that they couldn't find any substantial evidence to indicate that Georgia had been there at all. It wasn't long, however, until Michael Lelivre actually broke down to the investigators and struck a plea deal with them for a reduced sentence in exchange for information. Specifically, Michael told investigators that he would, and I quote, give them two girls. Michael kept his promise and he confessed to investigators that he, along with Mark Dutroux and Michelle Martin, had both kidnapped two girls and kept them in a dungeon in their house, which indicated to the investigators that these three people not only potentially had Georgia, but also had another girl, another missing girl, but who this missing girl was, they didn't know. Six days after Georgia went missing, on the 15th of August 1996, the police went back to Mark Zetru's house and uncovered a dungeon that was concealed behind a bookshelf. And inside this dungeon, they found a cage. And inside this cage were two girls. They found the missing 14-year-old girl, Georgia, alive along with a 12-year-old girl who we'll call Frances for this video to protect her identity. As it turns out, Frances had actually gone missing 80 days prior. The subsequent investigation into what exactly happened to these girls would tell a story of homicide, human trafficking, child prostitution rings, and government-level cover-ups. This is the curious case of Mark Dutroux. YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. If you've been watching my channel for a while, you'll have noticed that recently I've been changing up the format of my videos a little bit to allow the case story to flow a little better. So I hope you're enjoying this new format. I'm still experimenting with it a little bit, so it might change a little bit here and there, but I'm quite happy with how it is at the moment. Today's case that we're going to be discussing is absolutely ginormous and it is insane. It's a questionably solved case in the respect that part of it is solved and part of it isn't solved. You'll understand what I mean as we delve deeper in this mini-series. As you can probably tell from this introduction, this case has so much to it and because of that I've actually decided to split this case up into three parts to form a mini-series. Three key chapters to a case that absolutely blows my mind. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made to cause disrespect or anything like that, it's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Some names in this mini-series have been replaced with fake names in an attempt to protect their identities and to remain respectful. 
I will mention when I'm using false names in this case just for clarity. The theories discussed in this mini-series are just theories. They are not facts. They do not represent the views of any official working in this case or anybody involved in this case and do not necessarily reflect the views of myself. Again, the theories are not facts. They are just theories. And as always, I ask you to remain respectful when discussing this case in the comment section down below. And with all that being said, let's delve straight into this case. Mark Paul Allen Dutroux was born on Tuesday the 6th of November 1956 in Axels, I believe it's pronounced, Belgium. He was actually the first-born child to his parents, who would ultimately have five children together. Both of Mark Dutroux's parents were actually teachers, and the young family of three moved to Belgian Congo so the parents could teach and have better opportunities. However, when Mark Dutroux was just four years old, the entire family had to uproot their lives and move back to Belgium, and this was due to the Congo crisis. According to Wikipedia, the Congo crisis was a period of political upheaval and conflicts in the Republic of Congo between the years of 1960 and 1965. The crisis was due to Congo becoming independent from Belgium and unofficially the entire country of Congo finding itself under the rule of somebody called Joseph Desai Mobutu. The Congo crisis is obviously outside the scope of this video but it does play a minor role so I thought it best to discuss it. As a result of this crisis in 1960, a lot of Belgians decided to make the move back to Belgium for safety. Around 100,000 people are thought to have perished during the crisis with a series of civil wars actually taking place. 11 years after the family moved back to Belgium, Mark Dutroux's parents divorced in 1971. It is unknown the exact details of this divorce or the fallout that surely ensued, but what is known is that Mark Dutroux and his siblings remained with Mark's mother, um, and became estranged almost from their father. By this point, Mark was actually 15 years old and three years later in 1975, Mark actually got married himself when he was just 19 years old and he fathered two children. The marriage wouldn't last that long, however, because just eight years later in 1983, the couple divorced when Mark was just 27 years old. According to some sources, the divorce was as a result of Mark actually having an affair with a woman called Michelle Martin. I'm sure you recognize the name from the beginning of this video. After the divorce, Michelle and Mark continued to date and see one another and they actually ended up having three children together. The couple enabled one another and they could be described as purely evil. In February of 1986, Mark and Michelle were actually arrested and this was because they had kidnapped and raped five young girls. Bear in mind that Mark and Michelle together had three children and Mark had a further two children from a previous marriage, meaning he had five kids in total. I believe all the children were taken away from Mark and Michelle as a result of this charge, rightfully so, and the children aren't mentioned again at any point further on in this case. Mark was sentenced in April of 1989, which was actually three years after he had been arrested, to only 13 and a half years in prison. 13 and a half years for abducting and raping five young girls. 
That to me is absolutely despicable and disgusting. How much time did Michelle serve, you may be wondering, for her part in the crimes? Michelle served just five years. This wasn't Mark's first run-in with the law, however, because Mark actually had an extensive criminal history that included convictions for muggings, substance dealing, car theft, and even involvement in the trade of those stolen cars to Czechoslovakia and Hungary. That same year in 1989, when both Mark and Michelle were sentenced, they actually got married while they were still in prison. What I'm about to say next is going to anger a lot of people out there and it angers me so much. Just three years into Mark's 13 and a half year sentence, he was released on parole. And he was released on parole and I'm going to look straight in my script for this so I get this name right, by Justice Minister Melchior Wathlet. And this was a judge that had actually released quite a few sexual abusers and rapists early on parole due to their good behavior while they were in prison. I wanted to be sure to get that name right because this person, this person in law, he, 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 he let a lot of sex offenders go early. And that to me is just disgusting how you could release people who ruin and traumatize people's lives back into society and we're going to talk about how the justice system was in Belgium later on in this video and in this case. This meant that Mark was serving just three years in prison, three years for what he had done, kidnapping and raping five young girls. And this is only the beginning of the disgust and anger that I'm sure you're going to be feeling throughout this case. Even Mark's own mother was disgusted with Mark's behavior and his early release. And she actually wrote a letter to the parole board describing how Mark had made her own mother, Mark's grandmother, feel really uncomfortable during their supervised visits. Mark had made his grandmother so uncomfortable, in fact, that she was scared of him. And this was during the lead up to Mark's early release. Mark's mother told the parole board that she was absolutely certain that her son was going to do something again, and this time it would be far more evil. Mark Dutroux was a master manipulator, and he knew how to persuade people to do what he wanted, and he knew how to get people to do what he wanted. He managed to persuade a psychiatrist that he was somehow psychiatrically disabled, which meant that he was eligible for a state pension and free medications. It also made him eligible for further benefits which he no doubt claimed. Further to this, he managed to convince this medical professional to give him certain medications that he apparently really, really needed, which included sedatives and sleeping pills. So this medical professional, manipulated by Mark, prescribed him the medication that he needed, and this was medication that Mark would then use on his next victims. In April of 1994, Michelle was released from prison after serving just five years, and the couple was reunited. It is unknown what exactly Mark did during the time where he was released and the time where Michelle was released, but we can only presume that he just continued and advanced his criminal career, and he did a lot more 
shady and disgusting and illegal things. According to some sources, shortly after Mark's release, a number of young girls actually went missing from the neighborhoods in which Mark owned properties. Mark actually owned seven properties, seven different houses, which to me is absolutely insane because he was not rich and he's his only official income was this pension and his benefits from the government which i'm sure you're aware isn't enough to be buying seven houses where mark got this money to buy these houses is something we'll discuss later on in this case as well as i'm sure you're you you can tell this case is absolutely huge but don't worry it'll start to make more sense soon in one of these houses mark who was actually a trained but unemployed electrician built a dungeon and he built this dungeon in the basement of one of these houses and this dungeon was concealed it was hidden behind a bookshelf and this bookshelf was a massive concrete door that swung outwards and upwards to let you into the dungeon you couldn't tell from the outside that it was a door into this dungeon and on all accounts this dungeon itself was soundproofed and the thick concrete that was using the doors further uh, aid in preventing sound from escaping. In 1993, the year before Michelle was released from prison, the police actually received a tip-off that suggested that Mark had offered the anonymous tipper between the equivalent of 3,000 to 5,000 US dollars to kidnap young girls. However, the police actually ignored this tip-off and didn't follow it up at all, which is insane. Then in 1995, the year after Michelle was released, Mark's own mother wrote to the local police force and she told them that she knew for a fact and had evidence that Mark was holding a hostage, a young girl in his basement. Let me reiterate, Mark's own mother informed the police that her son was holding hostage young girls in his house. But just like with the anonymous tipper, the police ignored this. They didn't write her back, they didn't follow it up, they did nothing about it. That same year, the anonymous tipper that had informed the police about being offered that money actually contacted the police again and tipped them off with the fact that he knew that Mark True had built a concealed dungeon in his basement solely for the purposes of trafficking children, young girls, into prostitution. Like I said, both this letter from Mark's mother and this tip, this second tip from the anonymous tipper, they were both ignored and it wasn't following up. And these vital clues as to why so many young girls were disappearing in the area or in these neighborhoods which is thrown aside and thrown away. If these tip-offs had been taken seriously and followed up, had the police not been so negligent, many victims in this case would still be alive today. Of course, you could argue that the Belgian police were simply understaffed or overworked or had too many cases on their hands, but really when you get a tip-off, multiple witnesses tip-off about a person who had previously been convicted of rape and kidnap of young girls and you have cases of missing girls going missing in neighborhoods where this man owns property that isn't something you just ignore you know what i mean like you can't just ignore that but the belgian police in this instance did ignore these tip-offs and this letter and the effects of ignoring this evidence would be detrimental on saturday the 24th of june 1995 
Mark struck again. Julie Lajeune and Melissa Russo, sorry if I pronounced those incorrectly, had been the best of friends since they started school and often would hang out after school at the local park. Both Julie and Melissa were barely eight years old when they decided to go for a walk in the Belgium municipality of Grace Hollange. It was on this walk that those two girls would be kidnapped by Marc Dutroux and taken to his house in Marcinel. It was in this house that Marc had built the concealed dungeon, and it was inside this dungeon that Marc held Julie and Melissa. As always, I won't be discussing the particulars of the abuse and pain that both Julie and Melissa suffered while they were being held in this dungeon. The pain that these young girls endured at the hands of this monster are unspeakable and unthinkable. They were unfortunately subjected to horrendous acts. Now Mark wouldn't just carry out these acts, he would also be sure to film them. He filmed everything that he or anybody else did to these young girls. Almost two months later, on the 23rd of August 1995, Mark struck yet again. But this time, he didn't strike alone. Mark enlisted the help of a man called Michael Lelivre, and together they both travelled to Ostend, which is a coastal city located in the province of West Flanders, Belgium. Anne Marshall and F.G. Lambrix were teenage girls that had been on a night out in Blackenburg, a nearby town, and were headed back to their holiday home in Ostend. The two girls were from Hasselt and had travelled to Ostend on holiday with their family. However, on the way back to their holiday home, tragedy struck the teenage girls, as they crossed paths with Mark Dutroux and his accomplice. Mark and Michael kidnapped the two young girls and brought them back to Mark's house in Marcinelle. However, because Julie and Melissa were already chained up in the dungeon and the dungeon was occupied, they decided to chain up these two new teenage girls in the bedroom. Interestingly to note, Mark had actually been put under surveillance by the local police force. And he was under camera surveillance the night he kidnapped Anne and FG. But crazily, the police had only programmed the camera to operate between 8am and 6pm. Which is insane to me because, statistically, most crimes occur at night. These two girls, Anne and FG, unfortunately suffered at the hands of the same abuse as Julie and Melissa. But as with those two girls, I won't delve any further into the details out of respect. At some point in September, the month after they were kidnapped, Mark drugged Anne and FG and brought them to a house in a town called... Jumet. According to some sources, in the garden of this house, Mark Dutroux and another one of his accomplices, who was called Bernard Weinstein, dug a hole. They then forced the two girls into this hole before burying them alive. Sadly, Anne and FG succumbed to their environment and passed away. An exact date of when this happened is unknown. We just know that it happened at some point in September. Why it happened is also largely unknown, but we'll delve deeper into the theories around why it happened later on in this mini-series. Interesting to note, the house where the two girls had been taken to in Jumet was actually owned by the accomplice Bernard Weinstein. Shortly after this happened, Bernard Weinstein and yet another accomplice, who was called Felipe Divers, 
actually stole a van. They stole a vehicle. They took this vehicle to a private hangar, which they believed to have been, you know, abandoned, not really being used. And they believed that the van wouldn't be found if they stored it there. However, the hangar's owner actually intended to use the hangar again and clear it out so that they could, you know, use it or sell it or something along those lines. And when they went back to their hangar, they discovered this mystery van that was in the hangar. They obviously didn't own it, so they contacted the police. The police then came to the hangar and took the van away for forensic examination, and it was confirmed that this was a stolen van. The police were keen to track down whoever stole this van and put them behind bars so they could prevent further vehicle thefts. It wasn't long before Felipe actually returned to the hangar to retrieve the van and take it back to wherever they were doing, take it back to one of Mark's houses. However, when Felipe got there, he saw that the van had vanished and that there was crime scene tape about, so he returned back to Mark and told him what had happened. However, Mark didn't believe this story. He actually started to doubt Felipe's story that the van had been taken and seized by the police. He began to speculate that Felipe and his friend Pierre Rochau had actually stolen this vehicle again and then gone and sold it for their own profit behind Mark and Bernard's back. And Mark obviously wasn't happy about this because he wanted the van for his own use, presumably for kidnapping more girls. Um, And so he decided to interrogate Felipe and Pierre. So on the 4th of November, 1995, Mark decided officially that on that day, he was going to interrogate Felipe and Pierre to get to the bottom of the truth of what happened to the van. He managed to persuade Pierre and Felipe to come to Bernard Weinstein's house in Jumet, the same house where they had taken Anne and FG. And when the two men got to Bernard's house, They were drugged by Mark. They then chained up Pierre and Felipe so they couldn't escape. After which, Mark and Bernard went to Pierre Rochelle's house to see if they could find any evidence that could indicate that they had sold the vehicle or anything like that. Anything that could lead them to locate the van or to confirm their suspicions that they had sold it and betrayed them. However, when Mark and Bernard got to Pierre Rochelle's house, they actually found and were met by... Pierre's girlfriend. And Pierre's girlfriend was called, I believe it's pronounced, Benedicte Jadot, and she lived in the house with Pierre. Mark decided that he would also interrogate Benedicte to see what she knows, thinking perhaps she might be the weak link that could give in and tell them and confess what had happened to the van. The two men convinced Benedicte that her boyfriend Pierre had fallen very, very ill and sick back at Bernard Weinstein's house. So understandably, Benedicte, concerned for her boyfriend, went with them to the house. When they got there, they locked Benedicte in one of the rooms of the house. Now, Mark and Bernard tried to then drug Benedicte by giving her a rehit tablet. However, Benedicte was actually able to fake taking the pill before hiding it and then fake, you know, passing out and falling unconscious. Rehypnol is more commonly known as the date rape drug and is a tranquilizer that is 10 times more potent than Valium. The drug renders its user incapable of resisting, which is why it's so commonly used to commit sexual assaults. It effectively paralyzes the user. According to drugfreeworld.org, a person can be so incapacitated, made unable to act, that they collapse. They lie on the floor, eyes open, able to observe events, but completely unable to move. 
Afterwards, memory is impaired and they cannot recall any of what has happened. The drug starts working as quickly as 20 minutes after it's administered and can last from anywhere between 2 hours to 12 hours. According to CreditDonkey.com, which sources numerous official US government reports, university data and other reputable sources, just over 18% of women in the United States experience the use of date rape drugs at some point in their lives, with only 1.4% of men experiencing date rape. Only 42% of the victims of date rape end up reporting it to the police. Scarily, for every 1,000 reported cases of date rape, only six of those cases will actually lead to a conviction, which means that more than 99% of rapists in reported date rape cases are left to walk free. They can walk free and are unprosecuted, left to rape again. Shockingly, 25% of reported date rape cases are committed by someone very close to the victim, such as a boyfriend or an ex, with only 13.8% of reported cases having a stranger be responsible. 55% of date rape cases actually occur in the victim's own home, with 12% of cases occurring in the victim's friend's home or a relative's home. The statistics I came across while researching for this case are actually very very, very shocking. And it's a topic that I'd be interested in delving deeper into in a future video series, perhaps covering several notable date rape cases and court cases surrounding date rape. If you or anybody you know has been affected by any of the topics discussed in this video, in particular date rape, then I have left links to organizations and contact details for organizations and charities in the description box down below. The common use of date rape drugs mean that it would have been really, really easy for Mark and Bernard to get a hold of Rehypnol. It would be a kind of drug that you could easily get from your local dealer. But also, like I said earlier, Mark has managed to convince medical professionals to prescribe him sleeping medications too. So Mark had a wide range of drugs at his disposal. After Mark and Bernard had attempted to give Benedicte the date rape drug Rehypnol and they thought that it had succeeded, they left the house to go pick up a another person who I believe was the first accomplice, who was Michael Lelivre. During this time, Benedicte actually managed to escape the house and ran to a neighbour who then reported it to the police. Benedicte told the authorities absolutely everything that she knew, including the location of Bernard Weinstein's house. It is believed that when Mark and Bernard returned, they noted that Benedicte was gone and missing and presumed that she'd gone to the police. So they decided to go back to Mark's house in Martinal, where Julie and Melissa were still being held captive in the dungeon. Now, I'm not sure if Felipe and Pierre were set free by Benedicte or whether they were freed and rescued by the authorities or what really happened with them. But we do know that by this point, the police knew that they needed to find and arrest Bernard Weinstein. A warrant for Bernard's arrest was quickly signed and posted. Mark knew that Bernard now posed a massive risk in exposing what Mark was planning on doing and what Mark was doing, so Mark decided that he now had to get rid of Bernard. He was a liability. Mark kidnapped Bernard on the 13th of November 1995 and actually trapped him in the dungeon. Interestingly, he let the two girls, Julie and Melissa, then 
walk free in the house, walk around the house on their own accord. It is believed that the two girls were too scared and too traumatized to attempt to do anything. Mark fed Bernard food that he had laced with rehypnol, after which Mark then tortured Bernard in ways that I really, really don't want to describe. And this was all in an attempt to find out where Bernard kept his money because after all, Mark was going to get rid of Bernard and he might as well get all his money in the process. Mark killed Bernard in the same way that he killed Anne and FG by burying him alive. However, this time he buried Bernard alive on one of Mark's properties in sars le boisier Again, I probably pronounced that wrong. After which he forced Julie and Melissa back into the cage in the dungeon. But this attempt at covering his tracks wasn't entirely successful because in December of 1995, Mark de was actually arrested after he was recognized by Pierre Richard. Despite the obvious kidnapping charges and the use of date rape drugs, Mark was only charged with car theft. Mark was sentenced to three months in prison for this car theft and was released in March of 1996. This meant that the young girls, Julie and Melissa, were left without food or water for a three-month period. Keep in mind that Mark's wife, Michelle, had been present throughout all of this and she was in the house when Mark had gone to prison for the three months. She could have looked after the two young girls. However, according to some sources, Michelle claimed to have been too scared to venture down into the dungeon and give the two girls water or food. Subsequently, the two girls passed away due to starvation in the cold and damp dungeon. Interestingly, when exactly the two girls passed away is actually conflicted by Michelle and Mark. Initially, they claimed that Julie had passed away from starvation the very same day that Mark was released from prison, with Melissa passing away a few days afterwards. However, later on in this case, Mark actually claims that the two girls were dead way before he was released from prison. The two girls would realistically have been completely unable to survive this three month period on the limited food and water they were given at the start. So it is strongly believed by experts and the investigators that the two girls had passed away from starvation while Mark had been in prison. According to Randall K. Packer, a professor of biology at George Washington University, the maximum time an adult can go without water is estimated to actually be about a week. However, that would be if you were fully hydrated and were in optimal conditions. Realistically, Professor Packer goes on to say, it is more likely that an adult would only be able to survive three to four days without water. Further to this, an adult can survive anywhere from 21 days to two months without eating food, so long as water intake is maintained. However, in this case, the two girls had no access to either water or food, and they were girls, not adults. It is believed that the two girls passed away in December of 1995, likely around Christmas time. Unbelievably, the police actually searched Mark Dutroux's house on the 13th of December and the 19th of December in 1995, after Mark had been arrested. Both Julie and Melissa would have been alive during these searches as they took place just a few days after Mark's arrest. However, the police had been unable to locate the girls. A locksmith had joined the searching officer who was called Rene Michel so they could get into the house and this locksmith told the officer Rene Michel that he had heard children's voices while they were searching the basements and these voices were coming from inside the house. However, Rene Michel claimed that and decided that these children's voices had simply come from 
outside and not inside the house, despite the obvious screams that they had heard, and despite the fact that they knew that Mark DeTrue had a history of kidnapping girls, and they had been tipped off, that he had a dungeon in his house, and all this vital evidence, they just decided, nope, clearly it was just screams from outside. Further to this, the police had actually collected videotapes during these two searches, and on these videotapes, it showed Mark DeTrue constructing and building this basement. It showed the police where the location of the dungeon was. However, the police never actually watched these confiscated videotapes, simply because they didn't have a videotape player. Sorry, I find it hard to believe that the Belgian police, all of the Belgian police force, none of them had a videotape player at all in 1995. After Mark was released from prison in March of 1995, Mark buried the remains of Julie and Melissa in the same garden at the same house that he had buried Bernard Weinstein. However, with Mark's last two girls gone, it meant that he needed to find more girls to take their place. And that's what he did in May of 1996, when Mark and his first accomplice, Michael Lelivre, kidnapped the young girls, Francis and Georgia, those both being fake names used to protect their identities. Let's go back and talk about what happened to Georgia and Francis and talk about the lead up to a pinnacle discovery in this case. On Tuesday, the 28th of May, 1996, a 12-year-old girl who we've called Francis, in this case to protect her identity, set off from home on her bicycle to make the short journey to her school. However, Francis never made it to school. Mark DeTrue and Michael Oliveira overpowered and kidnapped Francis. But don't believe that Francis didn't put up a fight. Despite her being just 12 years old, Francis fought back. Sadly, it wasn't enough to avoid being taken, and Francis was taken to Mark's house in Marcinelle, where she was thrown into the dungeon. The entire journey, she pounded Mark and Michael with questions and demands. Mark told Francis that if her parents didn't pay the ransom for her, then some bad men would come and kill her. According to some sources, during Francis's time in the dungeon, Mark permitted her to write very emotional letters to her friends and family. Mark even promised that he would send these letters, However, as you can probably guess, he didn't send a single one. After a few weeks of being held in this dungeon, Francis actually begged Mark to let one of Francis's friends come and visit her so that she had someone to be with in the dungeon, which is when Mark decided to kidnap the second girl. Georgia. We discussed Georgia's kidnapping at the very beginning of this video, but I'll quickly recap it now. Georgia, who was 14 years old, was kidnapped on the 9th of August 1996 as she was walking home from her local swimming pool. A massive investigation was launched by the authorities in an attempt to locate the missing girl. Two witnesses had actually come forward with partial plates of a suspicious white van that had been seen around the swimming pool that Georgia frequented. Using these plates, the police were able to trace the suspicious van back to Mark DeTrue. On the 13th of August, 1996, the police decided to drop by Mark DeTrue's house and pay him a visit. And when they did that, they were met by Mark DeTrue, Michelle Martin, who was Mark's wife, and the accomplice, Michael Lelivre. All three of them were actually taken to the police 
station to undergo interrogation under kidnapping charges, which were charges that all three of them initially denied. And during these interrogations, the police actually searched Mark Dutroux's house, but the results of the search came back inconclusive. However, Mark Lelivre actually broke down during these interrogations and struck a plea deal with the authorities in which he would give more information in return for a shorter sentence. Specifically, Mark Lelivre promised the authorities that he would, and I quote again, give them two girls. Michael kept his word and confessed that the three of them had kidnapped two young girls and had kept them in a concealed dungeon in the house, which meant that they had kidnapped not just Georgia, but another girl. Upon learning that Michael had confessed, Mark True also confessed. Six days after Georgia had vanished, on the 15th of August 1996, the same day that Mark and Michael confessed, the police went back to Mark's home and led by Mark True, they found the missing girls, 14-year-old Francis and 12-year-old Georgia. Francis had been in the dungeon for 80 days. Two days later, on the 17th of August, 1996, Mark True took the police to his property in Sars-le-Bouzier and pointed out the spots where he had buried Julie, Melissa and Bernard Weinstein. The police were successfully able to exhume the remains and Julie's and Melissa's remains were positively ID'd to be theirs and the remains of Bernard Weinstein was also positively ID'd to be his. He still had a warrant out for his arrest. Half a month later, on the 3rd of September 1996, the authorities actually successfully located the remains of Anne and FG in the grounds and the garden of Bernard Weinstein's house in Jamey. The remains were successfully exhumed and positively identified to be that of the missing girls. An overwhelming amount of evidence was actually seized from Mark's homes and all his houses, including a hell of a lot of adult films. And I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of adult videos, along with homemade videos of himself and his wife, Michelle. They also located recordings of what Mark had done to the girls during their imprisonment. This case so far is actually so insane, disturbing, and is rooted in pure evil. And you'd think that this case would end here with the arrest of Mark DeTrue, Michelle Martin, his wife, and Michael Lelivre. But when the sheer amount of police incompetence in this case was made public, the public started to have their doubts and suspicions that something much more sinister was actually going on, and there was something bigger at play in this case. These suspicions were actually confirmed by Mark DeTrue when he confessed publicly that he was part of a sex ring that actually included high-level members of the police force and government. Had what Mark done been covered up by the police or government officials? Was Mark really involved in a sex child ring that was deeply rooted in the Belgium establishment? Did Mark actually sell the girls that he was kidnapping into sex trafficking or slavery? Questions we're going to be delving into in the next episode of this mini-series. The aftermath of this case caused the biggest protest march in Belgium history history, with over 300,000 people protesting for reforms in the Belgian policing and justice system. This case, as you can tell, is absolutely huge, and we're only just seeing the tip of the iceberg. There are more characters involved in this case that we haven't discussed yet, and those characters we'll discuss in the next parts of this series. And this is everything that I have for you in part one 
of the Marks to True case. The next episode in this series should be going live on Wednesday with the finale episode going live on Friday. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. Don't forget to hit that like button if you found this video interesting and leave a comment down below telling me what you think of this case so far. Subscribe to my channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a new true crime video. With all that being said, I will see you in the next video. Now, babe, well, you didn't win this. It's a part of the game.